1: Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our historians gallantly hold out in the face of overwhelming mythology, where myth and misconception is encircled and destroyed. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here, as ever, with my good friend and hidden sniper of history, Kyle Glover.
0: I'm making that my Twitter profile.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: Well, this week, dear rangers we are back into World War II and what is considered to be the decisive clash of fascism versus communism, the Battle of Stalingrad. This month, if you're listening at the time of release via our Patreon feed, marks 80 years since this battle ended. And so today we are joined by historian, publishing director for Head of Zeus Publishing and author of The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, The Hidden Truth at the Centre of World War II's Greatest Battle, Ian McGregor. Ian Welcome to History Rage,
2: guys. It is an honour and a privilege to follow in so many great steps to this microphone to talk to you this evening.
1: Oh, I'm like I'm liking the flattery, especially yeah. since those steps are ours. That's yeah, it,
0: that's, 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 the the, that, you that's key. That. We'll
1: send you a mug for that.
2: <laughs> Feeling angry? Uh, I'll I'll just get the afterburners going as as we progress as we progress. Let, let, let's uh, yeah. I have to slap myself a few times. Right, <laughs> let's get going. Okay, so you contacted us,
1: for it, for which I'd like to say a big thank you, because tracking down guests is one of the toughest parts of the job. Um, and you've got the new book out now. So so let's get to know you a little bit better then. What is your background? And what led you particularly to your interest in Stalingrad?
2: Uh, kind of, to cut a very lo- long story short, because it's very boring. Everyone goes to sleep and thinks I'm a bit of a wanker uh (laughs) what i'd say is that uh i've been publishing 30 years and pretty much all of those years i've uh published and you know you start at the bottom you're the the scrote at the bottom you're the assistant editor or editorial assistant apologies to any editorial assistants listening to this but i've been one of you but know your place guys (laughs) exactly so i started there and uh uh, yeah, like I said, I've, I've worked or, and edited, commissioned and published and then run an imprint of history. I uh, started out Osprey Books, which a lot of your listeners will know about, Osprey Military Books. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably my all-time favourite job, if I'm honest, because it was just, you know, pig and shit, basically. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> you love military history and you're surrounded by amazing authors producing amazing books and the artists doing these amazing colour illustrations. Yeah, there you go. You've got some good lad
1: yeah yeah we've all got uh, so there, yeah.
2: uh so there's that and then i've gone on to work with other you know you go to work with reputable authors writers and they get bigger and bigger so i've worked with people like simon sharma max hastings uh, michael woods uh people of that kind of caliber uh which is you know an honor it's fantastic quality of the yeah, those research. Are glorious footsteps that haven't come to this microphone as you well. never know well i've come now i've opened the door yeah. follow. I'm, i follow. Yeah, i am there we are i i am the the elite author pathfinder the boys have sent me in they say, check it out if it if it's good and they stump up a few you know five six thousand pounds we'll come and have a chat with them so <laughs> there you go lads i'll try but uh yes so writing started for me about six years ago seven years ago actually Because I'd say, and obviously I I know quite a few people in the industry, guys and and girls of my age, you'll find lots of commissioning and publishers frustrated that they'd like to be a writer themselves. Absolutely, you'll Mm -hmm. find dozens and dozens of them in all the companies across London and and in the UK in general. And I was lucky enough to come up, because you've always got to have an original idea, haven't you? Because that's why someone would pick up your book. You have to have an original idea for a podcast like yours, and then someone will listen and and that's how i started so i this new book the light Towns of stalingrad is my fourth book and yeah i mean it's just i've incrementally it's got bigger and bigger as i've been you know i've I've got a publisher who's got faith in me and and you know bit by bit he'll give me a bit more money every time i'm doing a new book and stalingrad you know all the money that i got for the book basically gone on research and travel because uh i'm not one of those that I'm lucky. I was going to say because I, I I don't want to sit at a desk and just write a history book. I'm I'm not that talented. I, I can't write a book as good as say Max Hastings or you know a, a book Anthony Beevor or someone like that. It's I like the oral history experience. Uh, I want to see testimonies, listen to recordings, look at first person documents, that kind of thing. And for that, you need to travel to the archives because if you look at the Stalingrad book, I'd say probably a third of it is first person testimony and I'm quoting it, but I had to do the travel to get it, and that's what really floats my boat. I love I love going to these big, amazing, iconic places in history, and you can't get anything bigger than Stalingrad, so that was just a dream. Or you
1: know, more iconic, really.
2: Yeah, so I love that. And, that. and 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 to kind of ramp up the atmosphere and the kind of uh, hairs on the back of your neck going up and all that kind of thing, I went in wintertime during lockdown, and the director at the museum got me a... A uh, professional uh academics uh travel visa so that got me over there could, and the guy could have been more helpful i mean you know literally considering it's russia putin's russia he was like yeah. you can sit down in the archives and see whatever you want and that's what i did and i came away could have looked at a thousand documents in the time i was there i was there for a good chunk of time well over a week uh i ended up looking at about 400 documents and that equated to about 180,000 words of translated text of Red Army soldiers at all different levels of the Red Army uh, who yeah. served and fought at Stalingrad, telling their own stories. And they've they've been donating testimonies. To, we'll talk about it later. But so I, I did that, and you can't. That that is literally a complete dream come true. And, I, and my point was, if the book doesn't even bloody sell, I'm not bothered. I have loved doing this. This has been a dream come true for me. So. Shouldn't say that because my publisher. I want it to buddy sell. So.
1: So then, okay. So we we know what we know. It's your dream come true, but history rages, of course, all about your eternal nightmare, and the thing that pisses you off the most. So, we'll ask our classic question, Ian, with all the emotion that you think it warrants. Would you please tell our mob of red revolutionaries out there? what you wish people would just stop believing
2: or get over anything they fucking read on wikipedia and that really <laughs> really pisses me off uh and there you go i've sworn on a podcast i'm going red already but it really does bloody well yes. wind me up in terms of especially you look at stalingrad you, if you mm-hmm. go on that connection, the page, you could literally wallpaper your room if you printed off all the pages on that Wikipedia section for Stalingrad. It's page, 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 page. And lots of it is myths, legends, tropes, and it's just propagated time after time after time on in terms of actions specifically in the battle, what the Red Army was doing at Stalingrad, uh, how strong the Germans were. And then one of the my my, my bugbears, even though the guy is, you know, he's leading a genocidal campaign into southern Russia. Uh, that's that's uh, General uh, Friedrich Paulus, he's, and he's the, he's the guy who obviously surrenders the German army and the Axis Sixth Army at uh, at Stalingrad at the end. And the anniversary is today, is you and I, you go, I are talking. Mm. Uh, he gets a bad press as in he's mild mannered, he's weak, he's. Almost in some sources, you can say that they're almost saying he's effeminate, uh, can't make up his mind, sacrificed his army because he couldn't stand up to Hitler, uh, blah, 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 (laughs) blah. And and then meekly gave himself up and wouldn't commit suicide and be the first field marshal of the German army to be captured, uh, because obviously Hitler promoted him at the last minute, wanting him to kill himself and he wouldn't do it. But he's been damned to history, and it really, really pisses me off because it's based on, uh, in my opinion anyway, uh, you can misread the fact – you can misread the the the, the sources sometimes and, and just get what you want to get. Uh, and the, the real bad boy of the story, the real bad boy of the Stalingrad story, in my opinion anyway, is Field Marshal Erich von Manstein. And he's seen as the super fireman, the superhero that Hitler always used on the Eastern Front to uh, shore up uh, a weakened front or take something that was impregnable, like he took Sevastopol before they started the summer campaign in '42 to go into southern Russia. They had to get their right flank, their westward flank had to be secure, and that, they had to take Sevastopol uh, on the Crimea. And von Manstein did that, and he's seen as the glory boy. He, he is the German pattern, in my opinion. He's a complete German pattern. Other than the fact that he lived and survived the war. And then when he finished it, he made damn sure he was the first senior big figure to get his autobiography out in West Germany that had been created by then in the 50s. So most of the myths and most of the criticism and most of the picture we have of someone like Paulus and what happened to the Sixth Army is told through the prism of. This guy wanting to uh, secure his legacy, and he's done it because we still we're talking about it eighty years later, and we're still thinking. Yeah. Pot von Paulus dithered and ruined his own army, and then just gave up, and walked into captivity, and it's it's not that simple at all, and it really winds me up. I mean, we're
1: going to come to von Paulus in detail in. in it's Paulus, by the way. If you want, oh, sorry. If you, want get, <laughs>
2: if you want to get me raging, don't say von Paulus because <laughs> von does not exist. It's Friedrich. Paulus. Well, that's me told, right?
0: Quietly edit the script whilst we're talking. But we'll go on, carry on. Okay,
1: so we're going to talk about Paulus a little later on in a couple of questions' time, then. Um, but certainly, is there an element there of he's been absolutely scapegoated then for a for a failure a that wasn't necessarily his? He may have been in a position that he just couldn't do anything about anyway, and totally repaint the the, the idea of the man to cover that catastrophic loss, especially when you've got to go back to Hitler and go, hello,
2: catastrophic loss. I mean, well, don't get me wrong. I mean, like I said, he, in the great scheme of things, in the great characters of the Second World War, he's not a good guy. I mean, obviously, there's there's not many, if any, German field commanders on the Eastern Front can come out Mm. thinking they smell of roses. They all smell of shit because, like I said at the top of the show, they – Ultimately, what Barbarossa was with the first invasion in 41, and then all throughout the rest of the the the, the Great Patriotic War, as the Russians call it, it's a genocidal war. It's a it's, it's a culture yeah. war. Their whole point is they want to destroy the country. They they pretty much want to eradicate any opposition and then put the rest of them in in slavery. I mean that that's that's just, I mean that's Star Wars basically. Yes. And, and so... <laughs> It's a very, very Western approach to look at what happened to the Sixth Army surrounded by masses of, of, of Red Army soldiers after they were encircled at Stalingrad. There. And obviously they're stuck 60, 70 kilometres out to the east, no hope of being rescued. And it's easy to then almost look at it like Rourke's Drift and Zulu dawn or yeah. whatever and it's and he's thinking oh those poor people and you'll think well they, they shouldn't have been there in the first place they were committing yeah. you know war crimes atrocities on mass and paulus i i've argued the point that he wasn't as radical or as vicious or as you know just uh, he wasn't a committed nazi so he wasn't one of those kind of guys but i've rightly kind of been put in my place saying well you can't be an apologist for him he still led this this kind of war. He was one of the key players in the war. They they murdered millions of people. I was like absolutely spot on. You're right. But what I would say is he was in a no-win situation. He's he's try, he's on a he's on an offensive that hasn't been properly thought through. It hasn't got the relevant resources in terms of men and armor and planes and everything else you need: fuel, ammunition, food, log- logistics, uh, transportation. It was all done on the back of a fag packet, so to speak, simplistically. And he's got to deliver. He's in the vanguard. He's at the sharp end going to Stalingrad. And then when he gets there, he hasn't got the resources to think, I've got to capture this city that literally stretches for 20 miles along the Volga. And all the while, my northern flank is being absolutely battered by one army after another. We destroy an army, another army comes. We destroy that one, another army comes. What the hell is going on? And I am keep being told by Hitler's headquarters that we've eradicated them. They can't have that strength in depth. Keep fighting, everything will be fine. And day after day after day, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And then he gets into the city and you've got this terrible urban fighting and it's just carnage. And I don't think he was a rabbit in headlights. I think he was, he was definitely, he followed the chain of command. And the the, the guys at the top Made bad decisions strategically, and left him out with his ass hanging out. And by the time it was too late, you need a full guy. Let's blame him.
1: Well, my knowledge overall of Stalingrad is is limited to say the least. Eastern Front is not really. I mean, I'm currently looking at Norway. That's about okay. I, to I can recommend like a
2: fantastic book to buy and read. So you know, uh, can you? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Anthony Beaver wrote it, I believed, didn't? He? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But yeah, can you, and uh, we've got a few people out there who kind of aren't Second World War focused. So can you kind of talk us through the battle, give us a beginner's guide to Stalingrad and and kind of how both the Germans and the Soviets end up there in that state?
2: Well, Stalingrad is a fight for a city that really should never have happened. Uh, it, It begins towards the end of the summer in 1942. But if we step back a couple of months, what happened there was very quickly, the year before, like I said, Germany and its Axis allies had invaded the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa, 22nd of June, 1941. They hoped to knock out Stalin's Red Army, destroy them in the field. Didn't do it. Uh, it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't like the campaign for France that was over in seven to ten weeks or however long it was. They got the surprise of their lives, even though they took out six million Red Army troops in that year, three million dead, three million captured, destroyed the bulk of their armour in the West, destroyed the bulk of their air force in the West. So they had free reign to push as far eastwards as they could. And they did by a good, good way. They were, they were deep inside western, the western half of the Soviet Union. As we all know, only 50, 60 kilometres away from Moscow. That's where they get pushed back. You get this big counterattack with fresh reserves. Stalin brings over from uh, Siberia, sorry, from the the, the Far East, uh, These some of which are Siberian units. Everyone says, oh, he brought over all the Siberians. He didn't. They were fresh troops that just happened to have a couple of Siberian divisions. But it sounds sexier to say he brought the Siberians over, like this big army of Siberians comes charging over the hill. It wasn't like that. There was just some elements of Siberian troops in there. So to get back to forty-two. Hitler's now got his forces stretched right across the front, going from the Baltic in the north, where he's obviously besieging Leningrad, all the way down a good 1,500 kilometres down into southern Russia. He's, he's taken the bulk of Ukraine, Belarus, He's gone into the Crimea, and as, as I was saying, he's trying to get Sevastopol, and that will be Crimea taken. So that's his yeah. westward flank gone. But now he needs southern Russia, and he needs southern Russia because of the oil. He needs to capture the oil. He declared war on America alongside his ally, Japan, that Christmas. And now he's in a global war and he knows he's not he's not stupid. Everyone thinks he's completely stupid because of what happens at Stalingrad, but he's not stupid at the point in terms of he knows strategically he's going to carry on this war and come out on the other side. If not a winner, then on terms that he's happy with, he needs to keep his war machine working. And for that, you need oil. And Guy mm-hmm. Walters has done a brilliant documentary with Alex Churchill, actually, on oil which viewers should watch, listeners should watch. And that's why. So we end up at Stalingrad because it's going to be this big operation, this big offensive, a roll of the dice. Hitler's not going to attack on a broad front like he did the year before. He's going to coalesce a lot of strip forces from Army Group North, Army Group Centre, put them into Army Group South, plunge down into the southern Russia and the Caucasus, where the oil fields are in Grozny and Mykop, but also push west, sorry, push east to the Volga. And that's very much like the Mississippi would be to the United States, like so American Civil War. Yeah. The Union needed to capture the Mississippi because it split the Confederate uh, states in two. Hitler thinks he'll do that. If he can get the Volga, he can stop river traffic, which is bringing vital supplies through from uh, the Caspian and the Black Sea, which is taken up to Russian factories in the Urals, that kind of thing. He thinks. We don't need to capture stalingrad we can just besiege the city bombard it but we need to stop the river traffic that that'll be our focus so army group south case blau was going to be in four stages they break through the line stage one and push east uh to uh capture a, a big strategic staging post called voronezh then they would pivot 90 degrees plunge down south again to capture another big city called rostov and that was seen as the gateway to the Caucasus. Then they would pivot left and a, a, a chunk of the army would be going towards Stalingrad and the Volga. That's the sixth army. But once they were there, then, then they would go south en mass and they plunge into the south. But to cut a long story short, seven weeks of fighting, the Russians, the Soviets, I should say, not the Russians, that, that, that winds me up as well. It's not the Russians. It's the Soviets. soldiers, men and women yeah. from all 15 republics fought in this battle. Uh, but, they're putting up a great fight. Sacrificially, they are. They're losing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of men and thousands of tanks. So Paulus is in charge of this sixth army. He's in the vanguard of what would be Army Group B, because what happened was Hitler gets frustrated, as he does. He's a tinkerer. He gets frustrated with the plan. It's not going to plan. And so he thinks, right, we are, they're putting up a fight, but we're really knocking them out of the park. And they were, you know, the, especially with the Luftwaffe protection that they had, the air protection. We've destroyed mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of tanks, uh, killed thousands and thousands of Red Army soldiers. Haven't taken many prisoners because they're retreating, but we're destroying them. They're weak. They're, they're, they're on the run. We've got them. So he makes a fatal error of splitting his army in half, uh, not even half, two thirds to one third. One third, which is Army Group B, is going to carry on eastwards, get to the Volga and look at Stalingrad, besiege it. And the bulk of Army Group South, Army Group A, is going to now go down to the Caucasus. So, cut a long story short, the fight to get down the Caucasus stalls. Uh, They're running, his armoured formations running out of petrol. Uh, They're getting all mixed up. He's constantly chopping and changing, moving one division here, one division there, armour here, armour there. It's a complete wacky races, you know, (laughs) quagmire down in the south. So by August, mid to late August, he's thinking, shit. We're not going to come away with anything here. I've expended all this materiel, tanks, motorized units, planes that I've lost. Mm. I've lost a good chunk of of the army that I sent out through casualties and the wounded, sorry, wounded and and dead. I've got to come away with something this year. And so all eyes turn to Stalingrad. I will capture this model city named after the guy I really, whose head I want on a spike. uh, And that's Stalin. So That's where you get um, Army Group South would still slowly fight their way down into the Caucasus, but now Paulus was under orders that Army Group B would not just besiege Stalingrad and stop river traffic on the Volga. He had to take the city. And in a ridiculous order, he had to take the city in under three to two weeks, I think it was. And that's what – so you see some of these photos. He's looking through his big field binoculars because you you go over loads of – you go through – basically you go through – hundreds and hundreds of square miles of wheat fields that surround that area of, of, uh, the steppe, the Russian steppe, where you, then you come to the river, you, you're going into constant, uh, gullies. It's like the American Midwest. You go over one big brow of a hill, and then you've got about 20 in front of you. It's like that. And you, as you get to Stalingrad, the Stalingrad itself is built on sets of bluffs and, and hills mm. as well. He's looking at this thinking, uh, logistical, strategic nightmare i haven't got enough troops really to take this city i need some help and so the, the beginning of the battle is basically again famously but it is true famously the luftwaffe gets sent in and just demolishes the city terror bombing at its finest it's guernica times a thousand they they spend yeah. the next two and a half weeks bombing at will because it's basically the, the the russian air force was weak anyway by the following year because like i said they'd lost it and uh whatever whatever fighters and 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 bombers they put up in uh, to try and stop case blow get shot out of the sky because it's green pilots brand new newly trained pilots don't know what they're doing and they're up against veterans uh in the Luftwaffe. yeah and so above the skies if you looked up and you're a red army soldier you'd be cursing because you're like where the fuck is my my air force i'm literally just getting bombed to hell here and that's what happened And, and that's the story of the battle right up until about you know mid to late november when the tide turns the Germans just dominated the skyline and that's so there we are we're at Stalingrad there's an army army group B is roughly is 20 20 odd uh, divisions uh, the bulk of which is infantry mm-hmm. he's got six army and then he's got fourth Panzer army that Hitler's allowed him to have coming up from the south because they were go they were being used to go down to the Caucasus they have to do an, a 180 degree skid turn can't do that in a tank and then they go up north to take stalingrad from the south so that's how it worked there and uh that's where it gets messy and that that's where you get bogged down in this attritional bloody carnage which is what it was complete awful meat grinder
1: yes it's just it's just both sides then trying to see which one is going to run out of people first
2: well yeah and basically the russian the soviets russians said russians again the soviets uh, their plan, and that, that's the key thing. Because if you look at the the, the, the documents as well, is basically the Germans manage to push their way or force their way, I should say, uh, b- very spectacularly. Uh, I think it's the 13th of September. They get into the city, and they don't just get into the centre, the heart of the city. They get to the Volga. They just brush the uh, the Red Army defenders that are there mm-hmm. aside because. Once Stalin knew, excuse me, once Stalin knew that the attack, the main offensive for that summer wasn't going to be at the centre and, and head towards Moscow, it was actually going to be, Hitler's going south, he's going for the oil. So that's fine, Soviets know that, Stalin knows that, but he has to send his forces that were protecting the centre down to southern Russia and down to Stalingrad. That takes time. So by the time Paulus is outside of Stalingrad, sending his forces in, therefore his troops, his his, you know, veteran troops are fighting uh kids uh factory militia workers train guards uh, nkvd security police and whatever red army stragglers had just you know retreated into the city they're not properly armed they haven't got great artillery they've hardly got any air cover and so they're clinging on for dear life waiting for the cavalry to arrive on the eastern bank of the volga which will be these divisions that are slowly making their way down on Echelon down to uh, the other side of the river. And that would be the story of the battle. The, the, the Soviets always, in the nick of time, managed to get another division across the Volga to shore yeah. up whatever emergency was happening that would just stop the Germans from taking – because mainly the, the, the bulk of the city, all the city really is on the West Bank. And as long as long uh, as long as the Soviets could hold on to just even a fingernail of the West Bank, it means the Germans haven't got it and the Germans will keep fighting. And even in September, Stalin's generals in Moscow, like Zhukov, are telling him, if we can hold them in the city, look at how long their flank is now. Their flank, their extended flank, because they forced their way east, is well over you know, several hundred kilometers long. We yeah. could gather our forces because we know we've got them. But he Hitler just doesn't believe we've got them. We've got them. We could gather our forces for a major strike in and do to them what they've been doing to us for the past 18 months, encircle and destroy them. And that's why the Soviets were under orders in the city to fight to the death. And the famous motto was there is no land for us beyond the Volga. There wasn't. If they they tried to get away, they were going to be shot. Simple as that. So they had to stand and fight. Yeah. So we've spoken about the battle. um, But what about the man? Man in charge. What what can you tell us about Paulus as a person, as a man, and uh, as a leader, as a general? I'd say that uh he grew up in the period where to serve in the armed forces was the pinnacle. Was you mm-hmm. know because obviously he he was born in the Victorian period, late in the 19 1890 1891 I think he was born. So mm-hmm. he was he was going to serve in the Great War uh, as as a lot of the senior commanders had done, obviously. That, that served in the wehrmacht and, and anywhere else uh, but what is what is plainly obvious is he's not a combat leader and he never should have been uh, the the most before he got one of the best plum jobs in uh in the german armed forces the sixth army was basically all, all the battles you guys know of and you talk about with historians in the second world war so invasion of poland invasion of france invasion of the low countries the Sixth Army had been the sexy, we can do anything. We can take, take any position you tell us to. They'd been the crack mm. unit that they'd always used. And, and so it had this, uh, its nickname was the Conqueror of Capitals. Because the, 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 film, the film that we see of goose-stepping Germans coming through Paris and you've got the Champs-Élysées behind them, that's the Sixth yeah. Army. That, that is the Sixth Army. And so that, he, he gets this position. And, and I'd imagine there's hundreds of German officers, not only in the Sixth Army who are going to serve under him, but across Western Europe are scratching. They go, what the fuck have they given him this job for? He can't do it. <laughs> Why the, him? you have But the thing was, what you have to think about, and what I've said about Paulus before is, he's not a dynamic person the biggest unit he'd ever led as a commander was a motorized battalion that's how crazy this is it's like you know uh, it's it's like it's 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 the liz truss, liz truss. effect of of promoting someone way above their, their capabilities but what he was was a brilliant strategist and staff planner he was a gifted staff planner so that's how he made his way up during during the peace years uh of uh, you know 20s and 30s that, that's how he made his name, and so there were a lot of there were a lot of frontline generals, you know, the, the proper combat leaders. They wanted yeah. his services. So, for instance, uh, he he was at the forefront of Poland. He was at the fo- forefront of the campaign in France. Uh, he was in charge of the war gaming of Barbarossa to actually invade Russia uh, before they even did it. He was one of the key guys, and so that was him. That was his. That's what he should have been doing. But by the time of 42, Hitler's fired loads of generals uh, and field marshals even because he's really hacked off with them. They haven't done, they haven't followed orders in his mind. Anyway, they've used their common military sense to save their armies from this massive Russian Soviet counteroffensive that Christmas. So he's fired a lot. He believes that they're. he doesn't trust the Prussian army corps. He thinks are against him. So he's looking for people that are either ardent Nazis or just haven't got the balls to stand up to him and will just do as they're told <laughs> because he's going to micromanage everything. And in the first instance, 6th Army, just before they 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 launched Case Blue that summer of forty two, their commander is a guy called Walter von Reichenau, Field Marshal Walter von Reichenau. Absolute cast iron, 100% bastard. The nastiest piece of work probably of the Second World War on the German side. Absolute odd Nazi very anti-semitic he's the guy that famously ordered or or uh, or issued i should say sorry the severity order to his troops to his officers basically you find a commissar you find a soviet commissar you shoot them uh you can kill civilians yeah. if you are you're suspecting them of any kind of sp- i mean you, you're literally giving people the green light to do what they want and then he famously he was his troops helped uh with logistics to massacre the jews at the Babayar in the ukraine and he famously yeah. said that he because he was worried that his troops were wasting ammunition he famously quipped well shoot two jews with one bullet so he's that kind of guy and he died ha, 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 ha. he died uh on a run because he was a fitness fanatic in his 50s like like we all are and uh he had a stroke when he was out running and uh it's comical actually and he's, he deserved it i suppose uh, they they, <laughs> they flew him back west, thinking that could they save him or not? Because he was in a coma. The plane crashed in wintry conditions, and then whatever was left of him, they they scraped up, put it in a casket, and he got an, he's got a state funeral. But my point is, Hitler thought, shit, I've lost, bon, you know, I've lost Reichenau, my man, my fireman. He he, I trust him implicitly. He's just going to take no prisoners, and he'll get the job done. Who can I get? And this is where the micromanager and the great military strategist that he thought he was comes to the fore. He says, okay, I'm going to give it to Paulus. I'm going to give it to von Reichenau's uh, staff planner, who's planned all this anyway. He's going to be my man yeah. because I can order him around. And that's, that's, that, is, that is the case. That's what happens. And so that's why I was saying at the top of the show, that's we all think von Paul. Von has have said it now. They all think powerless, powerless. It, Paulus is weak. He's feeble. He's not a combat commander. He shouldn't have led the Sixth Army. A lot of that is true, but he was effectively leading them up until they ran into trouble at Stalingrad, and up until you then have this surprise a- attack on his flanks and his army surrounded, which caught him by surprise. But it caught Hitler and the other generals at Supreme Headquarters by surprise. When that happens, I I think that's where he fails as a military commander. He should have taken the he should have uh, taken the initiative on his own and just thought, I don't care if this uh, I get court-martialed for this and, and shot or executed barbarically, whatever whatever Hitler had in store for him. Uh, I'm going to get I'm going to extricate my army. Uh, I can see what's happening. I'm not stupid. I'm I'm I'm, gonna, I'm surrounded uh, and it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. I need to break out. And he didn't. And that's the thing. Even though his divisional commanders within the Sixth Army were telling him, we've got to go. Now is the time to go while we still can. Uh, It's like a horror movie. And he wouldn't budge. And it got to the point where famously, and again, this is maybe it's one of those legends that you read on the Wikipedia page, some of his divisional commanders were really berating him in a meeting and saying, you know, if uh, von Reichenau was here, he'd do it. And it's apparently it's the one of the only times Paulus has lost his temper. And he said, "You know, I'm not, I'm not Riker now. So you got that. So hmm. I, I, I think he's he's not a decent human being. I don't, I don't mean it that way at all. Uh, like I said, he he served in an army that committed terrible atrocities, and they shouldn't have been there in the first place. But I feel, I feel sorry is not the right word. I Yeah, empathize with the fact that he's been damned by history when people aren't looking at all the right facts, because there's others to blame as well. Just as much.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Yeah. So whilst we're throwing around the Wikipedia version of history and the battle box, kill death ratios, that sort of thing. um, How close did the Germans come to actually winning, to taking and holding the city? Well, they'd taken most of it. I mean, like I said, all the cities on the West Bank, uh, by the time... Of the great uh, Operation uh, Uranus, uh, or Uranus as people like to call it, because it gets double entendre. By the time of that, November nineteenth, November twentieth, and then you get the, you get the Sixth Army surrounded. They had about ninety five percent of the city, and like I said, this city is twenty miles long. It's massive, it's absolutely massive. You got the old part of the yeah. city in the south, which is was basically wooden huts and shacks and shops and things like that and all, that that had all burnt down or been destroyed because of the fighting then you've got the center of the city which is what we all know and see from the photographs that's where you've got the big high-rise apartment blocks the department stores uh the subway all that kind of thing and that's where you get the really the bitter what they all call rat and krieg rats war uh and then yeah. that had all been taken pretty much uh, like i said the soviets were hanging on by their literally their fingernails they their their uh the land they they had in the centre of the city on the Western Bank was probably 100 metres deep, and they're just getting uh, deliveries across the Volga under the Shellfire and, and Luftwaffe attacks where how and where they can. And then the last bit of the city to take, really, and then Paulus is thinking, well, job done, and then we can settle down to winter quarters and recover. He's got to take the big factory districts, so things like the tractor factory, barricade gun factory, the chemical works. That's the things where... That's where you see the last really ferocious, bitter fighting. That's that's you know, thousands are being killed on both sides, obviously. And they're just almost there, and his army is exhausted, and that's when the Soviets strike with their counterpunch. Uh, and that's what happens there. So they kind of did have it. Uh they pretty much had the city. They mm-hmm. were just under the impression, again, because German a failure of German intelligence and Hitler's headquarters are telling them. Don't worry about the the flanks because you've got to remember the flanks are hundreds of kilometers long. It's the Stalingrad front. It's not just the fight for the city. It's the fight for the front. And that's where famously on that front outside the city, protecting the flanks, because all his his best troops, Germans, uh, are in the city doing the fighting. He's got to rely more and more on his allies, Hungarians, Italians, Romanians, to guard these flanks. And that's why they they were absolutely ripe, because the Soviets have built up 1.5 million troops, uh, well over 1,500 tanks. They're going to smash through these tr- these Romanians and Hungarians and Italians because they're not equipped properly. Their training's not very good. They're not led very well. They haven't got many anti tank guns to take on a T34 coming out of the mist at you. So that that's the situation and. Uh, that's what Paulus is going to do with And that's why, again, getting back to Paulus, he knows how bad his flanks are. He knows how bad his allies are, the condition they are to actually withstand any kind of serious fighting, the kind of fighting his men are having to endure in the city. Mm-hmm. He's telling this to his, his superiors, saying, you know, could we have some fresh troops maybe and move them into our flanks just to shore up our allies? Because I am worried that, you know, either side of me, something bad might happen. Because, you know, he's, he's just following military logic he might not know there's an existential threat out there he doesn't know that the russians soviets are massing all these men and tanks but he still sees his line and thinks we might be weak here we need protection and he and he's ignored and so he's, he's uh, his nightmare comes true and of course with that
1: with that ignorance of the wider red army that's out there then of course if he had even taken the city then they're just going to come along and encircle it. Yeah. Well, he, anyway, he, aren't yeah, he? He,
2: his his orders and what his plans were were they would take the city, and then obviously you're sheltered from what would be the worst of the, uh, of, the of the Russian winter, and the troops would be able to uh, make up as many shelters as they can in the city. But then obviously, the if he's taken the city, his airfields, Gumrak and Potomnik uh, uh, are intact. More supplies will be coming in. Uh, they'll get fed. I mean, that's what a lot of the troops on the front line were being told. You know, if we just win this last fight in the city and win the city, we, they've, the enemy have lost. We've pushed them out of the city. They're across the Volga. We can then reinforce our lines. And then some of you might be able to go home on leave. I mean, That's the kind of conversations these men were having. They, they had no idea how strong the Soviets were on their flanks and what was going to happen to them. So your book
1: particularly covers the lighthouse or Pavlov's house, depending on whose account that you're reading.
2: What happened there and why is it important? Well, because I've been fascinated by Pavlov's house for years and years and years and years, because it's one of the main legends from the Battle of Stalingrad. Don't get me wrong. There are dozens of, of amazing, heroic, exciting, fascinating Fights you could watch, or, or not watch. You could read about mm-hmm. in in the battle, whether it's at the beginning of the battle, or like I was saying, whether it's the fight for the factory districts, whether it's fights people coming back and forth across the River Volga, that kind of thing. There's lo- so many heroic acts because this is the biggest battle in history. It's like at the end of it, over three million combatants. It's huge. Cecil B. DeMille times a million. Uh, but with Pavlov's house, that's a metaphor. For what the Russians thought then, and what they think about it now, Putin today gave a speech in Volgograd, and he he he's name checked Pavlov's house again because it's a building it's just an ordinary building that happened to be in no man's land between the Germans and the Soviet lines, but because it was still standing, it was a wreck, but it was still standing because it was one of those new apartment blocks that Stalin had built uh, during the big five year plans before the start of the second world war and so You had to be an elite member of the Communist Party in Volgograd or you worked, you were a technician or scientist that worked or an engineer that worked in the factory districts. You were privileged enough to live in an apartment block like this because it had had, uh, cold and hot water, gas supplies, electricity, all that kind of thing. But the key thing was it was built with reinforced girders. So it can withstand the fighting. It can withstand... Uh, being bombed from the air or artillery bursts or whatever, and it's got a reinforced cellar. So the houses that are still standing in the centre of the city that are left, they're built like that, and that's where you get this house-to-house fighting, room by room, floor by floor, whatever. Everyone wanted Pavlov's house because it was four storeys high. You get to the top, you can get a 360-degree view, five kilometres in any direction. So if you're the Soviets, you can see what the Germans are up to, where they're massing to make the next attack. If the Germans had it, they would have a a bird's eye view of the Volga and know exactly what the Soviets are trying to do in terms of reinforcements. So it's it's an artillery spotter's dream, and that's why both sides wanted it. But the key thing is, uh, and this is the legend, by the time uh, you're a month into the battle and you've got all this house-to-house fighting, that's where the the Soviets were employing what we would all know as storm groups. This is these four- to six-man teams who would storm a house with grenades and machine guns uh, which obviously a copy. I've uh, been copied ever since, and that's what worked for them, and, and, and what they called hugging the enemy, keeping very close to the German lines, so the Germans can't use the air force to try and bomb the enemy because they'll hit their own men. So Pavlov's house is basically a house that was in no man's land, but it was occupied by some Germans. That's the story goes. They sent over this sergeant Pavlov, uh, sergeant Jakob Pavlov, and six or four actually four other guys with him. They take the house and it's a massive house. I mean, God, it's got like something like 50 apartments, It's a big apartment block. So six men apparently took this apartment block and drove the Germans out. Then he's reinforced by another, I think it is 15 to 20 men from his platoon. And as the story goes, and as the story schoolchildren in Russia learn, all these men just so happen to come from all 15 republics in the Soviet Union. So all, <laughs> everyone, everyone's represented at this this fight. But, well, it's, no, it's important to have diversity. Exactly, in these exactly. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, they couldn't understand each other for a start. But, uh, <laughs> but the thing is, to cut a long story short, Pavlov's house becomes this big, kind of magnificent seven, seven samurai type fight where apparently a whole German division attacks the house relentlessly for 58 days trying to recapture it. And Pavlov and his heroic little platoon hold it off. And they're slaughtering hundreds, if not thousands, of fascists. They're blowing up tanks. Even the sniper Vasily Saitsev wants to get in on the action. He visits and starts taking pot shots of people and killing them. And uh, to Soviets or Russians today, and it always has been because it was all throughout the Cold War as well, this legend is true. It's like a pillar. It's a metaphor for the sacrifice and bravery and heroism that was shown by all Soviet soldiers at Stalingrad. Everyone laps it up, as in, "Well, it's true." And I knew the story, and and his code name was the Lighthouse, by the way, which is why the title of the book mm-hmm. is "The Lighthouse of Stalingrad." But to not to try and simplify it, but it's bollocks. So it's uh, <laughs> it's
1: I. I, I know you're not in Russia when you said that. Yeah, are
2: you? Yeah. Well, no, but uh, but here's the thing, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to get anyone into trouble, but. You know there's several local historians that i met when i was over there and uh they they believe the same uh because it's not just about that it's lots of men did serve in the in this massive place but it's called pavlov's house after pavlov because this to cut a long story short i keep saying that but it's true uh because we'll be here all night otherwise because i could talk for britain all about this but uh the area where pavlov's house was by the time this all happened as I mentioned, the fighting by then had switched to the north, to the factory district, because the Germans had almost taken all, all the centre part of the city. The Soviets were hanging on by the skin of their teeth, and that's why Pavlov's house, even though it overlooks the Volga, Pavlov's house was in no man's land. That's, that's how close they were to the river, the Soviets. So they had it. So the, the German units that were there opposite them were actually in rest mode. They were recovering. They didn't want to have a massive fight for a house that they certainly didn't need to take. They didn't have a lot of armor, and they didn't make stupid suicidal frontal assaults. I thought we'll leave that to the Soviets. They do, they do that uh, every day of the week. We yeah. just mow them down. So there was that, and then so once you read all the testimonies and then you read the combat diaries of units on both sides, you realize this this did not happen. And then that's where my my uh, investigative nose then leads me down other rabbit holes and I find out that there's a a, a war correspondent who was a playwright in civilian life, which bodes well for the story. And he was given the job Mm -hmm. of trying to find a story because like I said, they'd lost 95% of the city. They hadn't actually encircled, they hadn't launched a counteroffensive yet to the rest of the country, the rest of the Soviet union. They're having this, you know, huge battle in Stalingrad, which might, they might lose. So there has to be some kind of feel. There was a thirst for feel-good stories from all the war reporters that were on the Stalingrad Front. There's well over three to 400 of them all trying to find stories. And famously Vasily Grossman, the, the famous uh, uh, Russian author uh, who wrote Life and Fate, he was there as well. So this particular war correspondent, uh, Lieutenant Julius Shapurin, he goes to the house when it's in downtime, so to speak, as in both sides are just happy not to fire on each other or launch attacks. Mm-hmm. He meets the defenders of the house, uh, and then he just concocts this story for his local army newspaper, which was called Stalin's Banner. What a great name. Uh, <laughs> and there the was weird- a good neutral, with, yeah, unbiased <laughs> and All All the various uh, elements of the legend that have lasted these past 80 years, he puts in the very first story. They're all from his imagination and within three weeks of that being published in in the army newspaper the 62nd army defending stalingrad it was their army newspaper like i said it was called stalin's banner within three to four yeah. weeks it was nationwide everyone knew about it and stalin's favorite broadcaster was dramatizing it on national radio but again you can understand why at the time you could think yeah okay, i get why they're doing it they were our ally they had to beat the germans they need to Gird everyone's loins, so to speak, to say, well, if these this small band can hold off the division, what else can we do? Let's go. And uh, but then it's it's one of those things; it becomes too big to fail. And so, and then obviously, end of the war, we're into the Cold War, and there's no way the Soviets are going to so, say, oh, by the way, Pavlov's house was complete bollocks. And yeah. uh, it, it's one of several stories that uh, are myths of the battle, like Soviet sniper duel with the German officer. That's complete rubbish as well
1: yeah that one's yeah yeah
2: so that that's the story in a nutshell to flash forward to the end of battle, the end of the war um it's thought about ninety thousand german soldiers surrender
1: survive and surrender at stalingrad but only a few thousand of them ever actually returned
2: to germany after being taken prisoner um what do we know happens to them well, yeah, it's, it's over 90,000, and it's predominantly German, but obviously mm-hmm. there are the allies in there as well, so Italian, Hungarians, Romanians. What what happens is, I mean, they get marched off. You've got to remember, it's it's, it's the depths of the, the Russian winter, and it was unusually cold that winter as well, and that, that's why it was so – that's why when you look at the film and the photos of, of the Germans in Stalingrad, you can't help but feel sorry for them. Because it's just the conditions were atrocious. I mean at one point, I think it went down to minus thirty when I was there doing my research two years ago the i, I went to November because I wanted to feel what it was like uh and it was minus yeah. twenty and it was bloody freezing i mean it was proper <laughs> i i mean if you look at my if you look at my timeline on Twitter, you'll see a video of me standing by the Volga, and the steam i mean you can't see the other side of the river there's so much steam coming off uh the the river because the river is warmer than the air and it's just steaming off it's just incredible so anyway get back to your sorry get back to your question about five thousand would end up getting back home uh to to germany and to whatever the other axis countries they came from but you've got to remember that if you look there's there's roughly around 3 million uh again predominantly german were taken prisoner by by the Soviets during the Second World War, and of that, again, wh- whichever statistic you believe, it could be five, six hundred thousand, might even be up to a million died in captivity uh, through wounds that they suffered already, mm-hmm. and worked to, work to death, worked to death, etc., etc. But still, terrible. But that's nothing compared to the Russians. Russians, millions died. But what I found mm-hmm. doing the research was, uh, if you park Stalingrad for a second everywhere else on that huge, long frontier, if you were captured, you had uh, about 30, I think it's something like, there's a 30% chance of you dying in captivity. You go to, now you go to Stalingrad and you look at those guys that have just marched off. It was 92%, had a basically 92% chance you were going to die. Uh, and that's what happened. And the reason is, is because if, if you look at the, seven, eight weeks before oh, – or nine weeks, actually, sorry – before they were captured and they went off as POWs, they'd been besieged. They were encircled. They were on starvation rations. So they'd been and mm-hmm. not just sitting there in their seat thinking, thinking, I'm really bloody hungry, I need some food. They were constantly on the move, constantly being shelled, constantly fighting, which, as we all know, you, you're, you're exerting energy. You need calories because you're burning off calories. So they were yeah. all undernourished. Uh, the fighting men were. The generals – that's what, that's what hacks me off. If you, if you look at a lot of the <laughs> photographs of the generals that surrendered as well, and there's there at least 30 of them, they're all well fed. There's maybe one or two who's got maybe a little bit of sunken cheeks going on, but generally they look okay and their uniforms are in good condition, nice warm coats, they'll be okay. Whereas your average soldier, squaddy, sergeant, maybe lieutenant, company commander, whatever, the guys in the trenches and in the buildings fighting, They, I mean, they, they, they look like, yeah, they they look, they're emaciated. So they get marched off, but equally, you know, everyone goes, Oh, the the Soviets must have mistreated them. And they, they did, you know, there's lots of cases of, of stragglers being who fell out of the the line as they're marching away, being shot somewhere There's, there's cases of German soldiers not getting out of the way of Soviet trucks coming down the road and they just get run over. I think I would argue that happens in any army to be fair. Uh, but, uh, But what happens is uh, the Russians, the Soviets themselves haven't got any food to give them anyway, because, again, it's on record before the capitulation, before the Germans surrendered, uh, Vasily Chuikov, who's commander of the 62nd Army defending the city, Mm. he's berating his superiors saying, can we have some more food supplies coming over the Volga, please? My guys are starving. So even though they they promise that they'll look after the Germans once they surrender, they can't because they haven't got the food. They you know, literally just haven't got the food to feed them yeah. with. And so that's why 90, I think it's 91,000 plus go into captivity by the 2nd of February, and they're the ones that are marched off into the, the steppe to, to get to the transit camps to then go on to wherever they're going to go. But within six months, 50,000 of them have died. And that's because they're emaciated, they're carrying dysentery, typhus, pneumonia, you name it, they had it. And that's why there's such this huge... Disparity compared to other disasters that they had in Eastern Front. Stalingrad is by far and away the worst thing that could happen to you if you were a you And uh, yeah, I mean, and that's why you get some sympathy. You wouldn't be human if you didn't think you felt sorry for them because it's just, you don't want to see anyone like that. But uh that's a, a, a story, and that's why you have to be a bit more dispassionate and just sit back and think, just look at the statistics, look at the testimonies, tell the story, just tell it. Just don't get sides, so.
1: Okay, so coming just to the book then, because when, when I first kind of stumbled across this, I thought, right, and I'm probably wrong here, so let's open my eyes. Nazis burn an awful lot of their military records, an awful lot of evidence of uh, of most things. And the Soviets, as you've said, they, they very carefully curate this narrative that they want the rest of the world and their own people to think. And we, we often see this Soviet reputation of just writing revisionist histories yeah. that, that suit the Soviet Union. So how on earth do you get, go about getting to any of the truth?
2: Well, I, my, I was going to say, first and foremost, my book wasn't going to be like, I mean, Anthony Beaver's book is amazing. He's the one that should be credited with putting everyone's interest in the West about Stalingrad on the map. And he did, and he did mm-hmm. it the hard way. He went to do the research, and he he was lucky in. And he would say this himself because no one can get there now. the 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 Soviet, uh, well, the Russian Mil- uh, Ministry of Defense archives are in a place called Podolsk, which is 50 odd kilometers outside of Moscow. That's where the bulk of the the really good materials kept, like KGB reports, uh, Red Army reports, political communiques, all that kind of stuff. It's all there, and so Anthony managed to get some amazing stuff from there to go into his book and that's why his book's so good and it's still selling you know 20 odd years afterwards so Mm. you know with my publishers head on i I wanted to do this book because i love the subject and i've you know i've been to russia several times but uh in the past but what i wanted to do was tell a more human story i didn't want to get into the strategy i didn't want to talk about all the vast armies that were involved i thought what hasn't been done is really talking about two opposing units that fought that famously fought and slugged it out in the centre of the city for those apartment blocks and sewers and everything else, you know, house to house, room by room, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And and Pavlov's house was in the middle of that fight. And so that's where I came upon the other story. So it's the 71st Infantry Division for Germany. And in the red corner, it's the 13th Guards Rifle Division. So to get back to your question for research, what I was lucky about was... I just happened to – because I knew I couldn't go to Podols because it was closed. I wasn't going to get there. I figured that the the big museum in Volgograd, which has been open since the 50s, might have something. And lo and behold, they've got an absolute treasure trove. I mean, absolute treasure trove. Because they'd run, a, they'd run national campaigns in the 50s and in the 60s saying, did you fight at Stalingrad? If you did, write to us with your testimonies and we'll store them because you know we're building our archive. So there are thousands yeah. and thousands of testimonies from people – in all walks of life, who fought at every level within the Red Army, or the KGB, or civ- in the civilians, or med- medics, you name it, it's in the archive. And so I spent weeks and weeks before I went to Russia talking to the director there saying, well, I'm only, I only really want to know about the 13th Guards Rifle Division because that is, that's, the, that's the story. And so he was brilliant. And so when I arrived, I had nearly 1,000 files I could have looked at. I managed to get through about 400 of them uh, when I got there. And so they tell me lots of different things. And there's a massive dollop of propaganda in a lot of those files. And it's, you've just got yeah. to pick your way through to find the truth. And, you know, if you're looking at one, like Pavlov's house, for instance, if you're looking at one specific event in Pavlov's house, you, I read, you know, 15 to 20 different versions of what happened, trying to find out, well, who's saying the truth and is he a command, you know, and then you, and then you, you, uh, Countercheck that against the combat diary of the division itself, official records, that kind of thing. So that's that's was really, really good. But you're right. I mean, in Germany, I couldn't find that much, but I was really lucky because, again, uh, I couldn't go there. I, I went to Russia because they didn't have a, lot, a stringent lockdown, but Germany did, and the archives would have been closed even if I went there. So what I did was the yeah. 71st Infantry Division, comes from southern germany so i put lots of newspaper adverts out in southern germany just you know just saying did did you have a, a family relative that fought there and then over the next six months i got about 35 replies of various detail and intensity so you know someone might just send me an email with a picture somebody might send me scans of letters and then the absolute you know pinnacle of it was i got this uh uh I mean, it's a briefcase, a big leather briefcase, and it's the mm-hmm. personal papers of a major figure. He was a divisional commander, regiment, regimental, then divisional commander for the 71st Infantry Division that fought the whole four and a half months in the city, survived, and he was actually in charge of the Kessel that surrendered. So everyone goes on about it's, right. pa- it's all about powerless surrendered. He's like, well, no, this guy was in charge. He actually facilitated the whole thing and choreographed it and made sure Paulus went in the staff car and off he went, but he did it. And this guy left a 15,000 words, handwritten memoir, photographs, sketches, diagrams, maps, everything. And, the, and without bringing the conversation down, uh, this guy's name was uh, Major General Fritz Rosker. And uh, his story was, he went into captivity. So again, if anyone follows my Twitter timeline, you'll see it all. I've posted lots of pictures and documents and everything. Uh, Rosker, Fritz Rosker. Mm-hmm. He served twelve years in the gulags, Siberia, the Urals, Moscow, Caucasus, went all over the place. Was on one of the last transports to come back to what was would be West Germany, and he came back in the in the autumn of '55, and by Christmas Christmas Day '56, he committed suicide because he just couldn't fit back into life in a in a democratic country like West Germany. Wow, he couldn't get employed. Uh, he probably did have PTSD, if I'm honest, because he he went through the ringer, really. And yeah, so he collected all his papers, and then he killed himself. And that that treasure trove, and I'm not being flippant. I mean, because historically, it is. Yeah. His family were brilliant with me. They just said, "No, we trust you. We, we we want you to tell the story," and they couriered it all to me from Germany. And again, if if you look on my Twitter, you'll see photos of these documents and everything. And it's just in fucking credible. Well, thank you very much, Ian. Thank you.
1: That has been massively informative, particularly to a battle that has, let's be fair, has seeped into legend or horror story on uh, on all sides of it. So thank you very much. Do you feel better for getting that out of your system?
2: I do. I I need a beer now.
1: Well, if you'd like to know more, then you can and should start with Ian's excellent book, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter and keep up with that Twitter feed at Ian underscore McGregor one. But Ian, it's been you said it was an honour and a privilege to come here. It's been an honour and a privilege to host you. Ian, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavill. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're enjoying History Rage, then please consider joining the Angry Mob on Patreon because this will really help us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance. Entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye.